Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Kirk Point. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on, an employment lawyer will tell us how businesses should be preparing for the legalization of recreational cannabis. If you're curious about the business and investment opportunities legalization has created, you can join us September 26th at our Cannabis Investors Forum. Details on that are available at BIV.com slash events. There, you'll also find more information about our upcoming fintech panel on September 13th. The event will cover how small and medium-sized businesses can leverage financial technologies to their advantage. We're starting our podcast today by diving into everything we've learned in the last 24 hours or so since the Federal Court of Appeal decision to overturn the approval, the certificate, to construct the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project. Our newsroom spent the day Thursday figuring out what this latest court decision means for the project, for stakeholders of other major resource projects, for First Nations and others. BIV reporter Nelson Bennett joins us now for a discussion on what we learned and what is to come next. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. You got lots of open questions still, don't you? Because oh, I, I, sure I think do. all of us do. I mean, <laughs> we'll, we're going to get to those. But what, what do you think this sorts out? As a, as a court decision, uh, of course, you know, pending possible appeals and all that. But what, what did you think it defined yesterday in terms of the... Well, one of the things, I mean, the court does, does mention that uh, most of the flaws that were asserted uh, were without merit. Okay, so a lot of the criticisms that they heard from Burnaby and and some of the First Nations basically said uh, they discounted them. Um, But there was two important points. And one was the NEB's failure to, I guess, properly consider the marine impacts of increased tanker traffic. Now, the NEB argued that that's not their purview. Their purview is pipelines Mm -hmm. and it stops at tidewater. But they are the regulatory body that are that was responsible for the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act and everything that goes with it, like the Species at Risk Act. So So the court basically said that really they ought to have taken this uh, slightly extra step in this case because, after all, if not them, then who? Right. Yeah. And presumably this will change now because of uh, Bill C-69 and all the changes. I mean, the NEB is being changed to this new Canadian Energy Regulator. The Canadian Environmental Assessment Act has changed the Impact Assessment Act. So I don't even know if those bodies are up and running yet. So it would be interesting to see if they have to go back and do an an assessment, who's going to do it? Uh, I'm not even sure that that's clear yet. So Okay. All right. And then the other issue involving duty to consult. Yeah. What does it say there? Well, that that is the big concern. I mean, it, you know, the duty to consult with First Nations is something like an ever-evolving playbook that just becomes more refined, I guess, with each court decision. And yet, clearly, even the government still doesn't really know what this means. And, you know, um, Jen Gerson from the... Uh, uh, CBC had a really uh, excellent opinion piece, uh, and, and she summed it up. She said, the, until the courts can lay out clearly, explicitly, quantifiably, and objectively what is required of us as a people in our duty to consult First Nations, then it, it is a moral duty that we can never meet. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's like a Rorschach drawing, right? It means different things to different people. Yeah. And, and obviously, in this case here, the court said, you, you didn't your process was probably correct, yeah. but your execution yeah. of that process and wasn't. yet they didn't really go on to to 
right. give them an example, right. really. Uh, they right. just talked about there has to be more dialogue at this one stage. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I don't think that you can take from that decision any real firm guidelines about what actually constitutes real dialogue. The one thing that I saw missing from this was the Slaywood Tooth, um, I think their position is this is non-negotiable. <laughs> I mean, I can't see anything the federal government doing that is going to get them on board. Right. So, so, so you know, and, and uh, it's, it's a duty to consult, mm-hmm. not a duty to persuade, a duty to right. win over. Right. Uh, it, but it, it, and then the corollary of that, though, is do you have a duty to stand back when you don't have the kind of full-fledged support for a project. Yeah. Do you have a Do you have a duty there as well? Duty is a very loaded word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think probably what is needed here, in the absence of, you know, clarity on land claims and treaties and that sort of thing, is someone at the table with uh, cabinet um, authority, someone who can actually uh, negotiate and uh, you know come back with uh, you know really hard um, uh, proposals well, and, you know, with cabinets backing someone who really has the authority to negotiate. A how-to guide, a tutorial. Yeah. And, and someone with the authority to, <laughs> yeah, to, exactly. uh, to have to give and take. Right. Yeah. Now, the question remains, how is the government going to respond to this mm-hmm. if they move forward with a Supreme Court uh, appeal that means yeah. potentially a couple of years of litigating against First Nations for a government that has said and focused a lot on reconciliation. On the other hand, we also heard from Alberta's government that mm-hmm. they're going to pull out of the Pan Canadian Climate Plan. So, what do you think? Where does that leave? It the is a government? quandary because if they appeal to the Supreme Court decision, what does that say about the whole good faith bargaining, um, you know, with First Nations? Mm-hmm. Do they want to be seen as being, you know, um, I guess hostile to the idea of further negotiations. So, uh, and and as you say, you know, this could take months, if not years, to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, although I guess it could be argued we've got to resolve this because um, you know we're just otherwise we're going to be constantly in this revolving door. Um, I, I think it's interesting that that Kinder Morgan, their timing on this was. <laughs> they seem to have a better reading of the legal and regulatory and political landscape here than Ottawa did. They sure seem smart. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, sure, they sure seem shrewd. Yeah. Yeah. 99.98%, I think, of shareholders yeah, have voted. Yeah, something like that. We're trying to find that one shareholder, <laughs> yeah, exactly. two shareholders yeah. who said, They've been right away. The, said oh, I, don't, the I don't know, is this such a <laughs> yeah. good deal? I, don't, I want to hang on to this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another question that's been on my mind anyway, um, now that construction is halted effectively yeah. pending whatever the government decides to do and then months, if not years, is this going to cost us more? Well, obviously. I mean, uh, you know, when uh, in their proxy statement to the shareholders, uh, they, um, uh, Kinder Morgan had laid out some scenarios about here's what it might cost if it goes to 2021. And, and the one figure was $9.3 billion, I think it was. Well, I think that's the number <laughs> that's now more accurate than $7.4 billion, And maybe even more than that, depending on, because time is money. Um, I, but in terms of political costs, Rachel Notley now faces the prospect of going into a spring election without shovels in the ground. So you can understand why she's 
very ticked off. I mean, she said she was angry and you could tell in her speech, she was really, that wasn't, you know, an act. She was angry. Mm -hmm. And then we have a federal election next year too. So the question is, what do you think is best politically for the Trudeau government? Is there a way for them to get through this? Well, I guess they're, you know, they say they're going to soldier on and they, you know, have reiterated that this is going to get built. They think it's in the national interest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the only thing I can see them doing is doing what the court told them to do. The, you know, the court basically said, we think that, you know, that you can get the First Nations issues, uh, resolved fairly quickly. They said it was very specific and focused. Okay. So that's one thing. They can go back to the bargaining table, but, uh, my question is if they have to also go back and look at the marine, uh, the, the impacts of increased tank attack traffic on the marine environment, how long that might take and who's going to do it? You know, the, we're still in flux here with these new regulatory bodies. Right. They haven't got the new NEB in place. And, and right. by and as dangerous as you point out, to go and use the old grandfathered system mm-hmm. um, because obviously you have to uh, equip it with some, uh, some new skill and, uh, and some new expertise. Um, I, I mean, I, there's so many, so many really open questions. One of them of course comes down to, uh, the economic rationale for the project. And at what point does this lemon become a white elephant to mix my metaphors? Well, I mean, the projections are that, that we're losing something like $15 billion a year because of the discount that we have, because we can't get our, uh, oil to to tidewater and to foreign markets sure so um i guess the question is uh the long-term economic impact of not building it may outweigh whatever increased costs we're going to bear right but except one is a is kind of a forfeited uh revenue the other one is an incurred cost right they're on different sides of the ledger mm-hmm. and and uh, and so it you know can at some point, the argument be made that look, this is uh, this is just throwing good money after bad, well, and let, let's let's just keep shipping by rail and take the lower price for the uh, for the crude and uh, uh, play through. Well, a lot of the you know very smart people, economists and energy analysts have have said right from the beginning, even if this does go over say ten billion dollars, it's still going to be. Uh, a very valuable project once it's built and that, that Ottawa should not have a problem finding a buyer. Um, who knows? It could even be Kinder Morgan that comes back and becomes uh, one of yeah. the, the players. Uh, I think their, their point is that, um, that even if it does cost a lot more than, than $7.4 billion, that it's still, once it's built, it's going to have value. Yeah. What do you think this means, Nelson, for other major resource projects like, say, LNG Canada? And we're waiting to see whether that may move forward. That's to the next a whole stage. different. Uh, that's a whole different scenario from from my perspective because they have a lot of First Nation um, uh, support, uh, and that's the key. Uh, and you know, they uh, right from the beginning, um, you know, LNG and natural gas did not have the same kind of uh, uh, um, negative, you know, connotation as, as, as oil uh, yeah. for, for many First Nations. There are First Nations who oppose pi- oil pipelines but support LNG. So 
I don't think it's quite the same thing. The question we were talking about before we actually got got started in the conversation was, you know, be, because you've got uh, a great deal of First Nations who have signed on, mm-hmm. signed on to the benefits of this, um, the interpretation that most would make in that is that that is a kind of a tacit form of support. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's not. I mean, clearly there are groups that are against the project, but accepting the yeah. benefits for for practical reasons. Right. right, right. So how do we parse this properly to truly understand what the nature of support and opposition is, where it's located, and how and and if there is a relative significance to the to some of the support or some of the opposition? How do we sort that out? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, some First Nations have come out who have signed, you know, uh, benefits agreements in support of the project. Um, but it, it is, I, I think that's a difficult one to, to get a read on. I think you're right. I think in some cases there are First Nations who basically just decided, well, uh, you know, it's better to be, you know, signing on and getting benefits and having some say more say, right. uh, than they would if they just opposed it and then, you know, uh, uh, basically don't have a say in it. So uh, I think you're right. There are some First Nations who are, you know, maybe uh, sort of on the fence with that one. But there are some that are very supportive of the, you know. And of, others of who have a, a kind of a principled opposition to it, they're not going to accept the benefits and right. and they will they will just not sign. They will not be interested in negotiating even this. This is a, a non-starter. I mean, I think right. you know, Slavatooth, I guess, is the yeah. is, is really the, who who we are specifically talking about in this case here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, I I wouldn't want to be uh, the person in Ottawa that has to try to sort this all out. Um, it's a difficult situation. Well, especially and, with, and well, this especially, is something yeah. you know we've known this for decades. Right. This is why the BC Treaty Commission was set up to get this resolved. It hasn't been. Mm-hmm. And um, we're seeing we're seeing the result of that. We were warned decades ago that this question of unresolved land claims is going to uh, curb investment and create problems for you know a long time. And here we are. So does does this pipeline finally bring this to a head? Does this finally force us to confront what it is that we've been kicking down the road repeatedly or dragging ourselves? Uh, into some kind of nominal resolution? Does it really force us as a country to properly examine ourselves and get a reset? Yeah, well, I mean, the Trudeau government has talked a lot about reconciliation and making it a, a priority and, and that sort of thing. But I I, uh, I don't know. Having watched the, the treaty process, it's, uh, it's just fraught. Um, Maybe if we had a federal government that was a little more assertive, uh, because I have heard that that very often the some of the the biggest you know obstacles in getting treaties negotiated has been the federal government. Yeah. That the provincial government has actually been fairly, you know, uh, flexible. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it's a tough one. <laughs> Interesting. In the shorter term, then, Nelson, what are you going to be watching for? One thing might be the finalization of the sale of the line, and then, of course, the government's response. But what are you mm-hmm. expecting in the next couple of weeks? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if uh, if the Trudeau government is taking Rachel Notley's um, threat seriously, they, they should probably be um, convening 
fairly quickly to to deal with this and make it a priority but they have nafta to deal with as well yeah you know so <laughs> they also have doug ford to deal with doug ford is not exactly a big climate action plan no well guy, and, and, uh, and now they're they might lose notley as well yeah so not uh, exactly the consensus that justin trudeau was looking for a couple of no, years ago no yeah. but um and you know albert is an important ally in, in the the pan-canadian uh, framework for climate action it's you know can't have the big producer offside right or out of it right yeah. but uh so i don't know i i i would expect Hopefully, we see something out of Ottawa soon, you know, that they're taking some steps, either announcing that they're going back to the drawing board or launching, you know, a Supreme Court of Canada uh, appeal. I, I I would bet on, uh, the you know, them going back to the drawing board and just uh, doing basically what the court has told them to do. Can they do both? Good question. Um, if you launch an appeal, does that sort of not sound like a bad faith? Mm -hmm. You know, you've been told what the problem is. Here's the remedy. Go do it. And and if the federal government says, no, we're going to launch, well, we're going to try and do that, but we're also going to launch a Supreme Court challenge, it, it might not go down so well. But ultimately, it is going to the Supreme Court at some point again. Uh, so why not just get resolution on whether uh, the Federal Court of Appeal acted properly? Uh, out of the Supreme Court, notwithstanding whatever it is you're doing on the side to say, okay, you know, we're we're taking a two track approach here. We do want we want the Supreme Court's decision on this too. We don't just want to right. live with the Federal Court of Appeal because ultimately, because be we know too that there's going to be a rash of new challenges. Yeah, and whatever it is that um, they pull together here the next couple of years, I mean, it'll it'll start the clock all over again. It, we won't be going with the Federal Court of Appeal. We'll, it'll be starting in a lower court. And it'll move its way up and mm -hmm. up and up. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they could do, uh, you know, both tracks. They could they could try to, you know, go back to the negotiating table while launching a Supreme Court challenge. Uh, I suppose they could. And it would be, I guess, good to have uh, some final resolution to this. Yeah. Because otherwise, it's just a never-ending... Because the Supreme Court has talked about duty to consult. I mean, the Chilcotin and other... other, other yeah, Gilgamook uh, and yeah, exactly. Haida, yeah. yeah, so... In a way, um, th this. In a way, we almost need to understand whether this actually fits properly inside that framework too. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, I, I sh you have to admit there isn't a how-to guide out there. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to watch for, Nelson. Thanks for coming on the show and talking with us. Thank you. That's BIV reporter Nelson Bennett, and you can visit BIV today. Our podcast and also at BIV.com in the days ahead and today for more in-depth coverage on this. Joining me for this next discussion is BIV reporter Albert Van Sanford. We are 47 days away from the legalization of recreational marijuana. And even for businesses completely outside of the industry, there are implications for employers. So we're joined today by Jeff Mason, employment lawyer at Kent Employment Law, to walk us through some of those implications. Good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Haley. Generally speaking, how prepared do you think employers are for what this is going to mean? Uh, generally speaking, I don't think quite as prepared as they could be. Um, it's, uh, you know, it certainly hasn't been a, there hasn't been a lack of work on that front. We've had a lot of employers coming and talking to us, but um, the 
I think the one thing you see is that there's a bit of a lack of education of what the implications of recreational uh, marijuana legalization are for employers. Mm. And for the ones that do have the foresight, they're thinking about it, they're maybe concerned about it, and they're coming to you, what are some of the most frequently asked questions you're getting? Uh, well, what does this mean for our obligations towards our employees? I mean, it's uh, one of the interesting things about it is, you know, recreational marijuana is becoming legalized, but there hasn't there are, there isn't really any changes for employment law, right? So it's you're using traditional employment law tools; um, those aren't really going to be changing. So it's the question is how do the, the laws that we're already dealing with, the tools that employers already have, how do these apply to a whole new set of circumstances? There hasn't really been a whole lot of guidance on that. What are the current employment laws as they apply to to marijuana use in the current state? So uh, you're you have a whole host of different sort of obligations. Um, one of your primary ones is occupational health and safety regulations. So uh, employers have obligations to take reasonable steps to ensure that uh, they have safe working conditions um, and also uh, prohibitions under the criminal code as well. Um, but there's also uh, corresponding rights on the employee on the employee's side for accommodating. Uh, medical marijuana use, um, and even uh, marijuana addiction. Um, now also implicates privacy concerns for uh, employees as well. So those aren't really going to necessarily change that much, but um, the circumstances in which those laws are being applied are going to be uh, much different. That's really interesting. Now, I imagine it, it wouldn't be uncommon for businesses to have, say, an alcohol use policy. It's been around for a long time. Do they have to treat alcohol and cannabis similarly when we're talking about non-medical cannabis? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good analogy, uh, Haley. I, I think that there's a lot of similarities. Um, I mean, the most obvious of which is that being impaired by alcohol or marijuana doesn't really make a difference if it creates an unsafe work environment. That's um, that's a non-starter for employers. Right. Um, but there is a there is a unique element to uh, to cannabis, which is it also has medicinal properties. Um, you don't see that uh, with alcohol use, right? So that that becomes part of the challenge is how do you balance your safety obligations with uh, your obligations to accommodate employees. Um, and there's also, of course, uh, similarities with addiction as well. So there are definitely some similarities, but some subtle but very important differences as well. If, if I can continue down the alcohol cannabis comparison, uh, not to out our, out our own company here, but we have a beer dispenser in our cafeteria. Will we see a time where businesses will start having, I don't know, a cigarette dispenser for <laughs> marijuana? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't think anytime soon, possibly. You know, these things <laughs> yeah. tend to take a while to evolve. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, possibly. I mean, the, the, the issue for employers, obviously, is first and foremost, you have to make sure that you're providing safe working conditions and that your employees can carry out their functions. Um, you know, I think, you know, maybe having a, a, a dispenser like that might uh, not be conducive to that. But um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I think that's probably going to be more of a, a societal change. If, you know, if, if society sort of warms up to it, and it becomes less stigmatized, we might see we might see something like that. But I think it's we're going to see things sort of move along at a, a bit of a snail pace. Uh, you mentioned safety, obviously a huge issue. And politically, there's a, a provincial national conversation around safety on the roads and how you can properly test mm -hmm. for someone who's under the influence. How does that then transfer over to, say, situations where you don't want employees using cannabis, if, particularly if it's, say, an industrial application mm -hmm. or something like that? How do you test where do employees rights come in and can you actually test at this stage? That's a that's a great question. And uh, that's one of the probably the, the biggest challenges right now uh, facing employment lawyers and employers alike. Um, so on the one hand, you know, 
pol- drug and alcohol policies can go some way uh, in terms of dealing with that. You can certainly impose requirements to disclose um, uh, any prescription for, for marijuana, um, any uh, disabilities that require that, uh, that require accommodation um, by using uh, medical marijuana. Um, but, you know, employers can't uh, just require someone, um, you know, if you walked in today and someone thought you were uh, under the influence, they couldn't just, you know, take a, a blood test from you right, right. now. So um, there is a certain level of uh, reasonableness that's um, uh, that employers have to have to carry out. But I mean, the, the biggest challenge right now is finding ways, um, not necessarily from a legal standpoint, but from a scientific standpoint, finding ways to accurate, accurately test um, impairment. There, there are a number of uh, occupations out there that currently test for for drugs. The the companies that are currently testing their employees for for marijuana use. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, in the defense industry, we see it a lot. Um, what's going to happen after legalization to those people? Will they still be able to continue testing their employees, or do they have to completely reconsider their sort of processes around that? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know if it's going to to change a whole lot on that front necessarily. I think that. Um, I mean, in industries that are very safety sensitive, uh, you know, whether or not it is uh, medicinal use or recreational use, um, employers are going to have those those same rights. I don't think that's going to whole lot's going to change on that front necessarily. Um, I think what is, uh, you know, the, the bigger challenge employers are going to have is that, you know, within with the legalization of recreational marijuana, you're just going to see a, a proliferation of it. Possibly, so it's it's not necessarily the law that's going to be um, changing on that front, but the, again, the circumstances you're going to have more individuals at risk of coming to work under the influence. Medical marijuana in Canada, it's not brand new, but it's less new than recreational marijuana is mm-hmm. going to be. How has law evolved in the courts? Have there been many defining cases around that area? Have there been a lot of lawsuits emerging from it, particularly concerning employment law? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's been developing for uh, at least the last uh, couple decades. So um, we have seen a, a fair bit of uh, case law on that front. Um, we we see a lot of it uh, in the human rights context, in particular, mm-hmm. um, and it's. It's a bit of a unique animal, um, uh, recreational and medical marijuana, compared to other sorts of uh, other sorts of drugs that people can use for uh, prescription drugs or, um, or recreational drugs as well. So, you know, one of the requirements that we've seen come out of the case law through human rights legislate through human, human rights case law rather um, is that you actually need to uh, you need to advise your employer if you are prescribed. Um, you need to advise them what your prescription is and what your treatment plan is, and you have to comply with that treatment plan. So that's unique for a couple of reasons. You know, historically, um, if you're making a case for discrimination on the base of uh, mental or physical disability, um, generally, if you just have a, uh, a disability and you're using some sort of medicine for that, um, you don't necessarily need to advise your employer of that. Right. Um, you know, you're uh, you're prevented from being discriminated against that on the basis that um, your employer cannot uh, treat you adversely um, for uh, treating your your medical condition. Um, but there has been a case that came out, I believe, in 2015 that said that if you uh, if you are using me- uh, marijuana for medicinal purposes, you still need a prescription and you still need to advise your employer of that, and you need to. Com- comply with the treatment plan. So uh, the case was interesting because there was an individual who was uh, using marijuana for medicinal purposes, however, it was non-prescribed, uh, and the uh, employer the employer was found to have not discriminated against the uh, employee um, mm. for, for uh, reprimanding them. 
That's really interesting. And I'm curious to you mentioned sort of the role education is going to play in all of that. It's going to be crucial. There are different kinds of strains, and I'm no expert on this, but I'm curious too whether we've gotten far enough along in our understanding of the different types of medicine and how it affects us differently and the implications then for our work. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's obviously a, a massive issue that um, employers and you know any sort of regulatory body, police officers, we're all sort of grappling with, right? Is um, and it's not just the you know the strains is evolving, but um, you know we think of marijuana traditionally as just being you know smokable cannabis, but there right. are you know there's edibles, there's topical ointments, there's uh, there seems like there's new things coming out each and every day, right? So um, you know you you're not necessarily going to be looking for the uh, the telltale signs of uh, you know, uh, smelling marijuana and red eyes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's coming in all different forms now, which is going to make it more and more challenging, practically speaking, to manage it. Uh, just sort of jumping on to the idea of enforcement, we've seen the, uh, the government face criticisms about, uh, around civil liberties, about how they plan to enforce their drug driving laws. And I'm just sort of wondering, what are the similar, are there any similar concerns when we talk about workplace enforcement? I think there certainly are. I mean, it's uh, the the challenge that you deal with uh, in in the work environment that I think is probably distinct from the side of the road is, um, uh, or sorry, rather that's similar to the, the side of the road is that you have a balance between uh, safety concerns and privacy concerns, and you know nine times out of ten that weighs in favor of safety. And you know, I would always advise an employer that you know you you should err on the side of uh, of ensuring that you have a safe work environment. Um, that's you know the strongest parallel in my mind is that uh, regulators and employees employers alike are dealing with how do we ensure we have safe working environments, just like we're trying to ensure we have safe roads, while at the same time not uh, you know totally infringing people's uh, privacy rights. So, what would you say then, Jeff? Are sort of the first steps a business should be taking now if they haven't yet thought of this, they have no policy in place. Where should they start? Uh, well, a great first step is obviously to implement a policy um, for a number of reasons. And and you made a great point, Haley, when you spoke about the sort of educational nature of this. I think that's that's one of the most important things is that, um, you know, employees don't necessarily know what their obligations are. And um, they might not, you know, be intending to uh, to do something unlawful or improper in the workplace. You know, a great example is the individual who was using marijuana uh, for medicinal purposes, but he didn't have a prescription. He may have thought he was doing nothing wrong, but um, evidently he was. So creating a set of policies that really clearly outlines what the employee's obligations are, um, that just greatly reduces the risk of, uh, of having any um, misuse or impairment or any issues with uh, medicinal or recreational uh, marijuana going forward. Um, and it's also important from, uh, particularly from an employer's perspective, the, uh, if you can implement some sort of a graduated disciplinary policy, um, you're sort of putting your employees on notice of what is acceptable and what's not. Mm. And the legal effect of that is, is that eventually um, you can dismiss an employee for cause uh, for failure to comply with what is clearly outlined in your, in your drug and alcohol policy. If you don't necessarily have those, uh, uh, those things outlined in your policy, um, your employee can have a, a strong case that, um, you know, I didn't know I shouldn't have been doing that. And it would be much more challenging to, uh, to, deal, to dis- dismiss an employee for cause. And how far can a policy reach into hours after work? So obviously an employer would have a say between whatever the working hours are, nine to five, but can they have a say in terms of what employees do once they've left? 
Uh, that's another great question. And, you know, generally speaking, there is a bit of a, a line between what employees do uh, outside of work and what they do during work hours. Um, generally speaking, if, if what you're doing outside of work hours has an effect on the employer, then um, uh, your employer certainly can still have a say in that. Um, but marijuana use is also interesting because use of it outside of work hours can also affect you during work hours as well, right? So the key isn't necessarily, uh, you know, preventing use during work, but preventing impairment. And, um, you know, there's uh, certainly some, some science that suggests that uh, you can um, use marijuana one night and be impaired the next day. And so for certain very safety sensitive positions, that's obviously going to be very important. It's fascinating. I'm sure you're going to have your hands full as this evolves. And we'll certainly have to have you back as more employment related issues come up from this. But for now, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me back. That's Jeff Mason, employment lawyer at Kent Employment Law. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher and at BIV.com where you can find more business news. We'll be back next week. 